Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Christopher Davidson. Chris is an academic and author of several books on the politics and foreign affairs of the Gulf states. His latest book, published by Hearst, is titled From Sheikhs to Sultanism. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Many thanks, Bill, for the very kind invitation. I want to ask you, first of all, about the Gulf ruling families. Many commentators and analysts, myself included, may have thought in the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring, you know, their, their time was up. Yet they defied predictions, and two of, two of them, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, have morphed into a really a new reality, and that's the thrust of your latest book, isn't it? Yes, certainly the post-2011 landscape in, in the Gulf states, for all the Gulf states, uh, was, was incredibly challenging. Um, if we can say that the old shakely authority system underpinning the, the administrations, the regimes in these Gulf states, uh, was, was, was certainly shaken at that time. Um, this shakely authority, if we can call it that, of course, being based on, on some form of tribal and religious legitimacy, especially in Saudi Arabia's case, uh, and buttressed in, in all cases, in all the Gulf states, by varying degrees of these oil or gas rent-financed wealth distributions, as in much of the literature in political science on the Gulf, these rentier states essentially distributing wealth and benefits and public sector jobs to citizens in exchange for political acquiescence. But of course, this period, 2011 up to about 2015, was, was incredibly uh, tumultuous. We had the Arab uprisings, beginning in North Africa, spreading, of course, to the Gulf itself, where um, in, 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 in many respects, what we saw on the streets in Bahrain were probably the highest uh, per capita Arab Spring protests. Um, we had populist uh, Islamist parties uh, winning elections um, and making it quite clear uh, they were uh, opposed or, or um, uh, saw the Gulf uh, traditional monarchies as being fundamentally anachronistic. Um, we had, of course, great instability across the region with jihadist forces sweeping into Iraq, Syria and beyond. Then in parallel, we had the shale oil revolution in the United States. The oil price crash of 2014, uh, putting incredible pressure on these sheikhs rentier states and accelerating uh, domestic demand in countries like Saudi Arabia for oil and gas, reducing their ability to to gain export revenues anymore. Now, with, with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which, as you say, are the focus of my new book, these are the two wealthiest by GDP and the most uh, populous of the Gulf monarchies. They're also major global actors. Um, Saudi Arabia, of course, a member of the G20, the UAE hosting World Expo and maybe even Interpol from next year. Um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE seeming to have done more than the other Gulf states, for better or worse, in having pushed past this old shake-based authority system and moved on to something else. Uh, back in 2011, 2012, this was very hard to predict. There was very little consensus out there in academia and even in the broader commentariat. But I think in hindsight, uh, there were clues available, especially with, with regard to what was happening uh, in the United Arab Emirates, in particular, what was happening in Abu Dhabi, the principal uh, emirate of the UAE. Notably, Crown Prince's uh, MBS from, from 2017, but as Deputy Crown Prince from 2015 in Saudi Arabia, 
and earlier MBZ in, in, in Abu Dhabi, essentially having forged far more autocratic authoritarian structures, dispensing with this uh, tribal and even religious legitimacy, dispensing with the old consensus-based uh, consultative politics of, of the old sheikhs. Um, as I've tried to, to make the case in, in, in the latest book, this in many ways correlates with perhaps some form of contemporary sultanism, uh, albeit uh, sultanism in command of advanced economies with considerable economic and social development. On paper, and certainly for those who have incurred the, incurred the wrath of these two present-day sultans, uh, they seem far more ruthless and, and despotic, perhaps, than their predecessors. But I think we have to say, and certainly the data derived from the interviews and surveys in my book, does try and make the case that on the ground it does seem the majority of, of, of Saudis and Emiratis feel that these new governments are exactly the sort to push forward with the necessary social and economic development they, they perhaps need for a, for a proper post-oil future. Well, let's look at uh, Mohammed bin Salman, first of all, MBS. Now, he's shown skill and, and really extraordinary ruthlessness, as, as you touched on, in reshaping the power dynamic within the House of Saud in a very short space of time. How has he achieved that? Yes, this has been, this has been accelerated compared to what's happened with MBZ in, in Abu Dhabi. And MBS, of course, had, has had considerable advantages. Uh, his father, who, who, of course, became king and is the current king, was for many years beforehand a major enforcer within the royal family of Saudi Arabia, knowing all of the, all of the secrets and dealing with internal corruption, uh, giving, uh, giving MBS enormous insider information. On top of that, we have MBS's very tight crony network. He's built up in Saudi Arabia from his school and university friends. If we look at this tight circle around him today, so many of them are essentially comrades built up from shared experiences in Saudi Arabia, and this is a crucial point, MBS was educated domestically, unlike many of the other uh, uh, wannabe princes in, in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, conferring on him some, some degree of legitimacy. Um, and of course, we, 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 we have to admit his considerable personal resources in Saudi Arabia. I realise this isn't a very common line to take in, in Western academia these days, but the data does indicate on the ground he is wildly popular in Saudi Arabia seen as ultra-charismatic, quite a daring character, uh, especially amongst the youth, and I would go further, and especially amongst the Saudi female youth. Importantly, in, in the policy arena, there have been certainly many mistakes, uh, but he's also set out his stall, uh, a stall that resonates, I think, with many ordinary citizens. He's claimed to have a vision to fix the economy. Now, whether it will work or not is a different matter, uh, but it is a vision that's been put forward, which his predecessors failed to do so, a vision that can uh, theoretically uh, avoid Saudi Arabia from hitting that brick wall that it was undoubtedly heading towards uh, pre-2015. In parallel, uh, we've also had MBS doing Henry VIII-style sticking heads on stakes under the banner of anti-corruption, uh, distancing his team from any unsavoury links forged between predecessor princes uh, and a hodgepodge of dangerous temporary Saudi allies over the years, including Al-Qaeda and, uh, it would seem, even the Islamic State of Iraq. This strategy, in effect, uh, MBS's strategy of, of creating this distance uh, and even admitting to these uh, uh, unsavoury alliances in the past, 
can in effect shield him and his regime from any future sins of the father's issues. Uh, for example, should more evidence enter the public domain anytime soon, linking Saudi Arabia to 9-11, for example, or the Islamic State or al-Nusra in Syria. Um, notably, of course, we have the major lawsuit uh, in, in, in the States being uh, pursued by the families of the victims of, of the 9-11 attacks. Essentially, Saudi Arabia, as the sovereign under MBS, would be able to put forward the argument that these were policies and relationships uh, involving his predecessors, not himself or any of his cronies. That's very interesting. And as you say, it was skillful manipulation. And, and you make that very good point that he has this cohort of friends, university colleagues, and being educated in Saudi Arabia is very appealing to young Saudis. And interestingly, the, the point about uh, young female Saudis, because he, he is this dashing character, and, and he does uh, enjoy the limelight, doesn't he? But his counterpart, uh, MBZ, uh, we had uh, Andreas Krieg on our podcast uh, about a month ago, and he made the point that MBZ likes to operate in the shadows. He doesn't have that sort of flamboyant desire to be out there, to be photographed, to doing them the major interviews with big Western media uh, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has? Well, well, in many ways, M MBZ was, was the, the forerunner to what we've seen, albeit stretched out over a more gradual period of time, becoming Crown Prince in 2004, but only really gaining proper executive powers in 2007 and then consolidating them by about 2010. Not, as I think many have argued, 2014. It did happen much, much earlier than that. Um, of course, he, he too has had important uh, dynastic advantages. Um, his, his father, of course, uh, Sheikh Zayed, was the founder of the state. Um, his elder brother, of course, became the ruler. His elder half-brother became the ruler of Abu Dhabi and the president of the UAE. But MBZ, the elder son of this key block of full brothers, crucially their mother being Sheikh Zayed's favoured wife and, and who remains a key uh, matriarchal figure in Abu Dhabi and UAE politics today. MBZ, yes, more discreet, um, shadowy perhaps, but quietly charismatic. Certainly played, uh, long before MBS, played the anti-terror card very well. Uh, before he became Crown Prince, he was straight on the phone on the 12th of September uh, uh, 2001 uh, to the Americans saying, carte blanche, I'll do whatever you need me to do in the UAE to nip this in the bud. He got another uh, boost in early 2006 with the Dubai ports crisis uh, fiasco, you may recall, essentially dragging the UA's reputation uh, through the mud in the United States and beyond. Again, playing into MBZ's hands of trying to distance his regime and his administration uh, from the sins of the fathers. Uh, also played the economic vision card very well, of course, back in 2004, 2007. Abu Dhabi not faced with anything like the crisis MBS inherited in Saudi in 2015. But nonetheless, back then, there was rampant uh, inflation in, in Abu Dhabi, uh, certain heat, heating up of the, the oil economy, uh, lack of diversification, and a lack of suitable jobs for, for, for Emiratis. Overall, I think it, it, it's fair to say he has preferred a more, a more um, uh, uh, discreet approach on the international stage to MBS. That's true. He doesn't give the international interviews. Uh, but within the UAE, he's very visible and, and, and very popular, turning up uh, randomly at uh, uh, these uh, group weddings they often have, turning up at all kinds of festivals, walking down the street, sometimes on his own, shaking hands. 
Uh, on top of that, as many Amaratis are well aware, for many years, crucially, he's also been performing that role uh, that Prince Salman, now King Salman in Saudi Arabia, held for many years. The, the enforcer within the Abu Dhabi ruling family, dealing with internal corruption, um, mainly through his key intermediaries. These are his um, uh, non-ruling family member, sultanistic viziers, if you like, uh, the people who are put forward as the troubleshooters to, to fix things. And he's developed the reputation for uh, dealing with corruption within the ruling family, first and foremost. Yeah, now that's, uh, I, I want to explore that with you because uh, that is one of the mechanisms that they both have used to consolidate power, the, the anti-corruption drives. And of course, I'm thinking particularly of the infamous Ritz-Carlton Roundup, um, which uh, in the West was viewed with uh, a mixture of um, surprise and perhaps even uh, repulsion when the uh, details of of the, those arrests started to leak out about the abuse of uh, really very senior members of the ruling family and hundreds of business uh, businessmen within the business elite swept up in that. But that is playing well on the domestic front, isn't it, this anti-corruption drive? Uh, yes, extremely well. Um, the, the surveys in my book, which which I think um, actually more extensive than those that have been managed to be conducted, conducted by NGOs in recent years or even the commercial uh, uh, polling companies, uh, it's gone down extremely well. Certainly in the international media, the Ritz-Carlton um, um, uh, events were uh, heavily focused on what was happening to the big businessmen seemingly being shaken down. And also there was a lot of focus in the Western media on key Abdullah, uh, King Abdullah-era princes, including his sons, who we shouldn't forget at the time, were still holding key portfolios, including the National Guard. They were clearly being sidelined to solidify MBS's uh, power grab, his, his soft coup, if you like. But yes, for the average Saudi citizen, they absolutely loved it. Uh, we shouldn't forget as well that the anti-corruption drive is continuing today, uh, albeit um, uh, a little bit more below the radar. Uh, it's extending down to middle and even lower management uh, structures in Saudi Arabia. We have the beginnings of a, of a whistleblower uh, mechanism, a whistleblower culture, uh, that just wasn't there before uh, 2017. And this is important, isn't it? Because with this uh, Vision 2030 and the, the modernization, if you will, of the Saudi economy, the bringing in of taxes, of VAT taxes, the perception that the royals don't get breaks, we're all in this together. That's really important, isn't it? Yes, clearly there's been a message uh, from the top that this is, a, this is an era of austerity or, or, or belt tightening, if you like. Um, there needs to be a message sent that, that nobody is above the law. And this has been a very effective way uh, to send that message. I think we also need to add that MBS and MBZ, although they're both well aware of the need to uh, move on from the rentier state just as much as they need to move on from the old shakely state, shakely authority state, they're aware they have to do it very carefully. It's one thing uh, bulldozing past shakely consensus politics is another thing stripping away the average citizen's entitlement to the sort of benefits, subsidies and public sector jobs that perhaps their father's uh, generation could expect. It's why I think we've seen this sort of often uh, two steps forward, one step back approach. Uh, they will remove a particular subsidy, float a trial balloon. When Worth gets back to the palace, it's fundamentally unpopular. They will perhaps uh, 
uh, recant and, and, and introduce some other bonuses or, or shift back on it. It's why it's been a very careful and controlled approach. Also, the language that's been used over direct taxation, especially income tax, has been very, very careful. We've had sometimes uh, key officials drop hints about income tax, but then immediately backtrack uh, in some cases just a few days later. It's a game of uh, give and take at the moment, uh, but um, they do seem to absolutely know what they're doing. Yes, and another key, in, in as you say, this, this game of give and take uh, is control of the media, both traditional and online. Um, and I'm thinking of MBS again in particular. The murder of Jamal Hashoji, that effort at control uh, at times is extremely brutal, isn't it? Yes, undoubtedly the, the Khashoggi assassination was a, was a um, severe uh, a miscalculation uh, by, by MBS uh, or, or those around him, depending on, on one's line of thinking uh, or the evidence that's, that, that's available. Uh, and and that, that nearly cost him his, his international uh, uh, legitimacy. And he's struggled, of course, to repair his reputation in the wake of that. I think it's unlikely we'll see a repeat of those kind of tactics anytime soon. But I think the bigger picture is important. Both Saudi Arabia and the UAE have taken the control of media very, very seriously. Uh, in the online realm, they've perhaps emerged as the ultimate proponents of so-called networked authoritarianism. Uh, this concept first described in the academic literature in, in reference to China's attempts to control uh, uh, cyberspace and, and, and the media. In this sense, with Saudi and the UAE's considerable resources and the ability to buy in the best, including the best from Silicon Valley, from the UK, from Italy's defence sector, Israeli cyber espionage. They've managed to thwart any real emancipatory or revolutionary impact of social media uh, or other new platforms. And in fact, um, as I've tried to make the case in, in the book, they've managed to turn these uh, ostensibly modernising forces to the advantage of their administrations. Mm. And the traditional media is pretty much in their pockets, isn't it? Yes, I think we can extend that to civil society in general, whether that's traditional media, whether that's uh, NGOs, um, which essentially have to be licensed, controlled and co-opted, uh, whether that's uh, uh, national universities. Uh, the space for uh, on-the-ground um uh, dissent or even freedom of speech has been greatly tightened, but because of the more populist contract these rulers have established with their economic plans, with their anti-corruption drives and all else, they've essentially managed uh, to push past to push past these uh, these concerns. And another another point you make in your book is the way in which they have been able to control and shape both religion and ideology. And the conventional wisdom has been that these are very, very conservative societies and that that sort of approach, you know, is, is, is a risky one to take. But, but how is that going in, in both uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, this shaping particularly of the, of the religious ideology? Well, cer well certainly, certainly historically very conservative societies, especially in Saudi Arabia, far more so than the UAE, um, uh, Thus far, uh, the, the, the reforms which, which have, been, have been groundbreaking and, and unprecedented, I mean, if we compare what young Saudis uh, can do today compared to five years ago, it's really quite dramatic. So far, things have gone relatively smoothly. Undoubtedly, there have been sporadic incidents, including, of course, that lone wolf attack in Mecca the other week and, and the Pensacola shooting by Al-Qaeda-linked uh, um, Saudi Navy men in, in Florida the other year. 
Um, but it does seem the majority of young Saudis are on board with this. They're on board with a more socially liberal and, and secular society. In this sense, um, MBS does seem to have forged a better popular deal uh, with uh, the youth of the country than, for example, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi um, ever managed to do in the 1970s because, of, of course, he, he tried to do this as well. But he was unable to extend his reach into a far more uh, rural uh, uh, population. Uh, MBS has the advantage of a better connected, more urbanised society where the state under his control can reach the average Saudi and get his message out far better than the religious establishment can. As for ideology, as you mentioned, Bill, this, this is important to note as well. As most other recent and contemporary sultanistic regimes, whether in Central Asia, Central America, Belarus, elsewhere, are largely non-ideological. Um, they prefer to switch and choose using ideologies depending on their strategic usefulness rather than ever necessarily believing in them. Thus, in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, neither MBS or MBZ really have any time for transnational ideologies. Of course, they strongly dislike political Islam, dislike Arab nationalism as well. In fact, of course, they view political Islam as, as, a, as a fundamental regime threat, especially after what happened in the wake of 2011. So in many ways, I think their positions in recent years have been fundamentally counter-ideological, explaining what they've tried to do to the Muslim Brotherhood and its supporters, such as Qatar. We can, though, perhaps claim that in Abu Dhabi and Riyadh there's been a sort of local nationalism, uh, far stronger than that observed by Lisa Anderson many years ago, um, where they promoted with more militaristic traditions, for example, flag-waving, more emphasis on national days, a stronger Saudi and Emirati national identity, closely tied, of course, to the personalities of MBS and MBZ. And just as an afterthought, we can perhaps say uh, they also seem to have a belief in high modernism too. Uh, after all, Saudi Arabia having these female android robot cities, flying cars, sending space missions to Mars, uh, and so on. The Emiratis, of course, Amala, to, that, that mission to Mars, as you say, and that's that's a very high high modernism. Was that the term you used? Yes, I mean high high modern high modernism is a popular concept with uh, af, af, with Africanist uh, uh, scholars, um, where certain often quite uh, authoritarian regimes in Africa have tried to score brownie points, for example, by having uh, fully Wi-Fi enabled cities that would be the envy of many Western European capitals, uh, even though there's no freedom of speech or functioning civil society. Um, so it's a very, it's a very uh, seductive, um, uh, a very seductive um, ideolo I I ideology or, or source of legitimacy for many, for many states. Just to come back to uh, the the religious aspect of it, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, of course, has has arrested several prominent clerics and, and in, in at least one case, pursuing the death penalty. I mean, we haven't seen that w with MBZ, but. But do you think that given the support that MBS has, that uh, you know, ordinary Saudis would go along with and accept that perhaps uh, a death sentence for Salman al-Aoudou, for example, would be acceptable? I think, I think they're trying to play this game very, very uh, carefully. Um, clearly, uh, MBS is, is walking a fine line here. As we said before, thus far, there hasn't been any significant uh, pushback, although there could be if a particularly inflammatory incident happens, such as a, um, 
a death, a death sentence actually upheld against one of these individuals who we shouldn't forget in the wake of the Arab Spring, uh, in some cases command, commanded tens of millions of followers on Twitter and Facebook and other platforms. So these are, these are celebrity preachers who in many cases openly sided with what was happening on the streets in Cairo and, and Tunisia and in some cases even openly uh, criticised the traditional uh, Gulf monarchies. Thus far it does seem that this popular deal MBS has managed to strike with the majority of Saudis, and we shouldn't forget Saudi Arabia has this massive youth population uh, under the age of 18, uh, uh, coming to the fore now, coming to working adult age. They do seem to be more with him than with these uh, celebrity or perhaps former celebrity celebrity Twitter uh, 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 clerics. As for the more establishment um, uh, clerics in Saudi Arabia, these seem to have been co-opted and, if necessary, repressed. Uh, it does seem that the majority have been um, uh, kept on board. Whether that's with a mixture of uh, carrots or sticks, it does seem to be. Uh, it does seem to be working. So we have these uh, uh, two very powerful and determined crown princes, uh, Chris, both vying for ascendancy. Now, if I was to ask you to pick a winner, who do you think that would be? Uh, well, I think, I think, Bill, in many ways, this is a trick question for me. I think most likely, uh, I imagine they will effectively uh, co-rule over the two most uh, influential Gulf states for, for a while to come, uh, not foreseeing black swan incidents, which I do list in my, in, in, in my book. Um, even if uh, MBS may occasionally act against the UAE's interests, obviously the Khashoggi assassination um, uh, did not fare well for uh, the UAE, given their close relationship with Saudi Arabia at the time, nor did MBS's recent messaging on trying to get multinationals to move away from Dubai and, and recenter themselves in Riyadh. Overall, though, I think we need to acknowledge that MBZ in Abu Dhabi seems to have enough of a diplomatic streak and, and let's say, political maturity to move on and accommodate uh, his relationship with Saudi Arabia as and when needed, uh, acknowledging that uh, Saudi Arabia and, and, and MBS is clearly the UAE's strongest ally uh, uh, for at, le at least the foreseeable future. So these two can accommodate one another and effectively share in moving forward together? I think it'll be a bumpy ride. Uh, I think it's important to also recognise, and this is another key feature of um, contemporary sultanistic regimes, um, including those elsewhere in the world, sultanism is often... Uh, characterised by uh, arbitrary or even rash decision-making. After all, if you've got a very tight circle of advisers around you and little room for consensus politics, sometimes uh, policy failures uh, are really dramatic and, and out of left field. And we've certainly seen this uh, from both MBS and uh, MBZ's camps in the last few years, whether that's uh, various international and regional adventures they've embarked on and had their fingers burned, whether it's the Khashoggi assassination uh, or various other incidents, sometimes involving their, their Western uh, security partners. Um, sometimes they get things wrong and they, uh, sultanistic regimes, um, clearly uh, try and move on from that. Uh, but, but for sure it will be a, it'll be a bumpy roller coaster ride. Finally, uh, Chris... They are, for the time being, de facto rulers. Do you think either will become impatient and push their ailing elders aside? Yes, this is a key, a key policy and, and, and media question. Of course, a lot of ink has been spilled on this in the last few years. It's also very interesting, I think, for, for political scientists as well. 
Um, after all, we seem to have in Saudi Arabia and the UAE at the same time these twin cases of what's called the politics of the understudy. Um, this is a very, in, in my view, poorly researched theme in comparative politics, but I think it's a fascinating one. My feeling is neither MBS or MBZ is impatient, and they're both very happy to bide their time. Um, there are several reasons for this. Having statesmen above them, in, in MBS's case, his father, in MBZ's case, his elder half-brother, uh, Sheikh, Sheikh Khalifa, the president of the UAE, this allows them some degree of a, a buffer from the sort of policy failures I've just described. For example, MBS, on occasion, has hidden a little bit behind his father when he's been questioned about the Yemen war especially by foreign diplomats. But of course, in Saudi Arabia itself, the domestic media has championed, championed MBS, MBS as the architect uh, of, that, of that war. So we see a key disconnect there. It's useful to have someone on the top if someone goes wrong. Secondly, uh, having these men still in place above them allows MBS and allows MBZ to continue building up their sultanistic bases. So if the elder statesman were to die or to, to, to pass away today, it wouldn't really be a very comfortable situation for MBS or MBZ to assume supreme power and then perhaps have to appoint someone else as a crown prince who they would later have to move aside at some point in the future. Much better if this can be done smoothly in a few years' time rather than right now. Thirdly, as I believe the late Ambassador Miles uh, of, of Arab Digest rightly pointed out, if these men were to take over right now, um, they would have to seek fresh tribal oaths of allegiance. Uh, much easier, I think, for them to ride on the coattails of the current heads of state for the time being, who already have those oaths of allegiance in place. We know there's been some problems in Saudi Arabia, especially with large tribes out in the hinterland being shifted away from their homelands to make way for new projects. So, so, so better any potentially controversial issues being kicked down the road uh, a little further rather than having to be dealt with right now. Finally, I think it's worth mentioning uh, that these relationships between uh, MBS, MBZ and, and their elder statesmen are very good relationships. Uh, MBZ loves his elder half-brother Khalifa, that's, that's, that's genuine, uh, despite a lot of the media attention uh, over that relationship. And it also seems, again, despite a lot of the media uh, activity, uh, MBS is, is incredibly fond of his, his father, having uh, shadowed him for, for all of his uh, adult, adult life and um, uh, uh, very much, um, uh, very much uh, uh, relying on his guidance in his early years. Chris, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. It was a, a delight to talk, you, talk to you today. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christopher Davidson. His latest book, From Sheikhs to Sultanism, published by Hearst, is out now and highly recommended. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.